In any conspiracy theory, one of the most crucial elements of such ideology is that of the perpetrator. Depending on a specific claim, the villain of the conspiratorial ideology are identified as the gays, immigrants, Big Pharma, or Monsanto. But no conspiracy theory perpetrator is associated with these belief systems than the Jews. A narrative that goes back to ancient times and one that has influenced the extermination of 6 million people during the 20th century. And while efforts to bring awareness about the negative implications of anti-Semitism have been implemented in museums and history books, historians, human rights activists, and researchers on the effect of conspiracy theories have been sounding the alarm as the normalization of the hatred for the Jews have been accepted by some of the most influential artists in pop culture. I am your social chemist, Nelson, and on today's episode, we go over anti-Semitism, the conspiracy theory of the enemy above. And I'm back. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I apologize for delaying on content production. I just finished my fall semester and I had to do some assignments that needed my attention. And I recently moved out of my home city and the moving process has been quite uh, time consuming. So there's that. But anyway, let's get this ball rolling. So anti-Semitism has been in the air. If you recall Kanye West or as he is form or as he, yeah, as he is formerly known as E went on a tirade of anti-Semitic remarks blaming the Jews for all social ills known to society. This was then followed by Kyrie Irving from the New York Nets, who on his Twitter shared a documentary called Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America, which promoted several anti-Semitic tropes, more specifically that the real chosen people of God are African Americans, and that the Holocaust was beneficial to the collective good. But Kanye by far takes the spotlight in the most recent trend of anti-Semitism, making an appearance on the Alex Jones show, Infowar, and promoting so much anti-Semitism that even Alex Jones himself in that segment of the program was like, hey, 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 come on now, let's not make it so transparent. You're talking about the globalist, right? In which Ye replies, yeah, the globalist Jews. But where does the hatred for Jews come from? And why is it so prominent within contemporary society? That's what we're going to learn about today. So for this episode, we're going to look at the history and psychology of anti-Semitism, as well as assess whether anti-Semitism is a left-wing or right-wing conspiracy theory. Now, anti-Semitism has three pathways. There's the religious, the conspiratorial, and the geopolitical explanation for the prejudice of the Jewish community. For this episode, I'll be focusing on the religious and conspiratorial aspect of anti-Semitism, since the geopolitics of the conflict between Israel and Palestine is too complicated for even my standards. When it comes to that dilemma, I felt that all scholars from both sides have a sort of bias, so it's hard to tell facts from opinions. So to avoid just giving my thoughts, we'll stick with religion and conspiracy theories. Now to understand the historical implications of anti-Semitism, we need to refer back to the Holy Bible. In Matthew 27, we find our protagonist, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, facing execution for blasphemy. At the time, the governor of Judea in ancient time, Pontius Pilate, offered a proposition in which people could select one of two individuals to be executed with the opportunity of saving the other, the two people being Jesus Christ and some person named Jesus Barabbas. Pontius Pilate thought that because Jesus Christ was Jewish that his own people would obviously pick him. However, in verses 21 to 26, we learn that's not what happens. The text goes as followed in the Bible. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. They, in the context, are the Jews. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Asked Pilate. They all answered, Crucify him. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? 
and they cried out, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now it is Matthew 27-25 that really has become the heart of anti-Semitism, which is why among extremist hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan, Jewish people are often referred to as Christ killers for allowing Jesus Christ to be executed when they could have saved him. And since then, the hatred for Jewish people have been persisted for centuries. In the year 1144, a 12-year-old boy named William was found murdered in Norwich. At the time, the death of the child was a mystery. But four years later, Thomas of Monmouth visited Norwich and claimed that the reason William was murdered because the Jews had used him to perform satanic rituals and drink his blood. These accusations were first records of blood libel against the Jewish community and often resulted in the persecution and death of the Jewish people. In the modern era, this concept will be adopted by QAnon supporters who would claim that Democrats, Hollywood, and the LGBTQIA plus community were also kidnapping children to murder them and consume their blood for adrenochrome. Now, one of the prime elements of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories is that the Jews control every banking system and therefore funded every war in human history for the purpose of depopulation and more specifically, the depopulation of non-Jews. And there's a grain of truth, but as Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid Podcast says, this claim is a hundred years out of date. During the Middle Ages, Jews were forbidden from owning land and working in respectable occupations. They barely had any rights, really. However, Christians had a problem. According to their sacred texts, they were not allowed to loan money because it was considered sinful and dirty to engage in such practices. So one day, someone thought, since money lending is a dirty business, why don't we get the Jews to do it? And that's what they did. Now, this concept really doesn't make sense to me because if Christians loan money to Jews so they can loan money to lower class people, aren't they already committing sin? Anyways, the position was a highly stressful job since if Jews were unable to return the money that was loaned to them by Christians, they'd be killed. It was for this reason that Jews had a 30 to 40% interest rate when lending money to the common man. One person that became prominent in money lending, or as it's known now as banking, was a man named Amschel Meyer Rothschild. Now, what makes this person interesting isn't his last name, but who his debtor was, which was the Duke of Bavaria. And so he had to be sure that every coin was returned, because if not, he most certainly would have been killed. For this reason, he had the idea of sending each of his five children to London, Paris, Vienna, Naples, and one of them actually stayed in Germany, to develop the first international banking system. This concept was easy for the Rothschilds, since they were family and able to trust each other and not be worried about money being stolen. Within a century, the system enabled the Rothschilds to become one of the wealthiest families in Europe. However, when the Nazis came into power, this wealth was confiscated from the Rothschilds and were used to fund Nazi operations. It is at this point that conspiracy theorists mix these events to frame that the Jews were funding the Nazis, when in reality, the Nazis took over the wealth by force. In 1349, Europe was being crippled by the bubonic plague, killing an estimate of 25 to 50 million people. In order to find reasoning behind this, many found an easy scapegoat, the Jews. It was explained that God was punishing Europe for allowing the Jews to destroy Christianity and that the Jews had made a pact with the devil and poisoned the wells for depopulation of the Christian faith, Bill Gates styles. Even though Jewish people were dying at the same rate as everyone else from the bubonic plague, this didn't prevent people from raiding Jewish communities and executing them in the name of salvation. 
Between 1290 and 1394, a systemic wave of anti-Semitism takes place when England, France, Switzerland, and Germany expel Jewish people from these countries. It is believed that the expulsion was to maintain Christian purity. However, official explanation was never given. In 1343, Emperor Louis VI states in regard to Jewish expulsion, You belong to us, body and belongings. We can dispose of them. We can do as we please. Essentially saying, we can do whatever the fuck we want. In 1903, a pamphlet was published in the Russian newspaper, Zamnia, translation for Banner. In this document, it was reported that the Jews and Freemasons had met in 24 separate occasions in Basel, Switzerland, to formulate a plot against Christianity and implement a Jewish New World Order. In this pamphlet, it was described that the Jews had control of the media, academia, and our economic system, and that Marxism was a Jewish conspiracy to destroy economic and individual liberty. This pamphlet that was written from a first-person perspective would be known as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and while it was later discovered that the document was fraudulent and worst of all plagiarized from a fictional political satire written by French publicist Maurice Jolie titled The Dialogue in Hell Between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, other parts of the pamphlet also originated from anti-Semitic literature to help form the basis of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. In 1933, a prominent political leader with the capability of influencing thousands with his energetic hand motions and tone of voice rose to power. This individual would be known to historians and the rest of the world as Adolf Hitler. During his reign, he blamed the Jews for German economic struggles and social decline. Some historians claim that Adolf Hitler didn't really hate Jews because of the theological reasons, rather that Adolf Hitler was a far-right nationalist and expressed xenophobic ideologies, and since Jews did not have a country to settle in, many anti-Semites like Hitler viewed the Jewish population as rats ready to infest the German nation, and that the only way to prevent such an infestation was to find the final solution to the Jewish problem. In Nazi ideology, Jews were not only viewed as a religion, but also as a sub-race. Similar to how during the slave days in the United States, African Americans were viewed as three-fifths of a person. In Nazi Germany, there was no bigger threat than the Jews, and starting in 1941, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party would implement the most heinous act in human history, the systemic extermination of six million Jews, also known as the Holocaust. In 1965, the Second Vatican Council produced a historic document that changed the Catholic perspective of Judaism. This influential literature, known as Nostra Aetate, Latin for In Our Time, did a number of things. But what is important for you to know for this episode is that in section 4 of the article, it rejected diocede, which is the claim that Jewish people are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. It also encouraged peaceful dialogue between Judaism and Catholicism, and dismissed the church's interest in trying to baptize the Jewish community into Christianity. So how come in the 21st century the Jewish community is often the scapegoat for wild-ass conspiracy theories? Well, that's what we're about to find out. Now, if you've been following this podcast, one of my favorite conspiracy theory models is the existential threat model. In this, we have the existential threat, the understanding of the threat, and the antagonistic outgroup. And while this model is excellent in demonstrating the function of conspiratorial ideologies, it doesn't inform us about the reason why an outgroup becomes antagonistic. For example, you and I are in two different groups. In this podcast, you are the listener while I am the podcast host. Another example is that I am from New Jersey, while you can be from Texas, Arizona, Maine, Kentucky. And by that definition, that puts us in two different categories. Now, assuming you're from a different state, would me residing in Jersey enable you to make a negative assumption about me simply because of where I reside? Unless you've dated someone from the Northeast and they gave you a bad experience, for the most part, your idea of me is neutral. 
So the question remains, how come all outgroups don't receive hostile reactions from the in-group? In the paper titled The Psychology of Antisemitism, Theory, Research, and Methodology by Florid Cohen Abadie, she uses the ABCs of prejudice model to explain the reasoning behind the hostility towards outgroups. In this model, A, B, and C stand for affect, behavior, and cognition. But what do these terms mean in regards to outgroups? When it comes to cognition, the idea is that we are all cognizant of our environment. For instance, you're able to look at your kitchen drawer and distinguish between forks and spoons. You can also identify that utensils are not humans and that you yourself are not a spoon. This cognition process is always occurring in the background, from the items we see to the people we come across. We're able to identify a person and determine that their characteristics and features are different from our own, leading us to develop generalizations of the object or person that is presented towards us. For example, if you see a man walking on the street, one can generalize that they engage in heavy labor work. We use their identity to fill out as much information as possible. Next, we have affect. Now, for people that aren't associated with psychology or mental health, affect is just a scholarly way of saying emotions. Based on the object or person, this can influence our affect. For instance, imagine if a butterfly landed on your thigh. The average person would admire its beauty and even post it as a story on their Instagram. This would make a person feel special since a butterfly decided to relax on you. Now, imagine if a fat, juicy cockroach crawled on your thigh. Would you feel the same way as you did with the butterfly? Because I the fuck would not. In this example, the categorization of the butterfly and cockroach influences how we feel about both insects. In regards to the hatred of the Jewish community, while mainstream society categorizes people of the Jewish faith as contributing members to society to an anti-Semite, they view the Jewish people as roaches. This finally brings us to behavior. How objects or people are categorized and make us feel will dictate how we respond when we come across them. Like I said, if a butterfly lands on us, the average person would admire it and take a picture to remember the moment. But in contrast, if a roach crawls on you, you'd behave in disgust and do everything in your power to kill the roach so it doesn't produce more and infest your surroundings. The same mentality Adolf Hitler had of the Jews. Now, when mainstream media reports on anti-Semitism, it often portrays the hatred of the Jews as a far-right movement, and in a way, I can understand why. Adolf Hitler promoted fascism, which is a far-right-wing ideology and one that enabled the Holocaust. But labeling anti-Semitism as a movement exclusive to the far-right is a mischaracterization of anti-Semitism. In one of my earlier episodes, I spoke about the two kinds of conspiracy theories, partisan and ideological conspiracy theories. To help refresh your memory, partisan conspiracy theories are exclusive to political ideology. For instance, Russian collusion is exclusive to Democrats, as Stop the Steal is exclusive to Republicans. On the other hand, ideological conspiracy theories are bipartisan, where both left and the right engage in conspiratorial ideology. For instance, that Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. And by the way, before you start screaming at me, I'm not saying that he did or didn't kill himself. I'm saying that the official story has it that he did, and most Americans don't buy that story, leading everyone to develop a conspiracy theory of some sort. Now, when it comes to American political conspiracy theories, experts in the field of conspiracism categorize conspiracy theories by the antagonistic outgroup. Recall in my conversation with Dr. Benjamin Dow when he stated that what makes a left-wing conspiracy theory is when the antagonistic outgroup is a corporation and what makes a right-wing conspiracy theory is when the antagonistic outgroup is government. In anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, the Jews control everything from the food you consume to the school your children attend to the people that are placed in power. For anti-Semites, the Jews are both the corporation 
and the government. The only difference is how the far left and the far right label the enemy. For the far right, they'll be transparent about their hatred for the Jews by simply saying that the Jews or the Jewish problem. On the other hand, individuals that lean to the far left will identify Jews as the Illuminati, the Freemason, the Deep State, even though this term is also used by people on the right, the New World Order, or the Anunnaki, which depicts Jews not as humans, but as demonic reptiles created by Satan himself. And while anti-Semitism can plague a person from both political ideologies, the hatred for Jews often leads people heading towards right-wing concepts. It's for this reason that individuals like white nationalist Nick Fuentes, Alex Jones, and former President Donald Trump have been associated with Kanye West's rhetoric, whereas no mainstream left-wing political pundit has enabled the ideology of anti-Semitism. So what can be done about anti-Semitism? The question unfortunately doesn't have an answer now. According to the Anti-Defamation League, 2021 was the highest year on record for documented reports of harassment, vandalism, and violence dictated against Jews. With the normalization of anti-Semitism that was seen in the Unite the Right march in Charlottesville, Virginia, where extremist demonstrators chanted, Jews will not replace us. Political victories for individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has promoted anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and Kanye, who has been making white nationalism mainstream. The problem appears that this won't be going away anytime soon. That being said, the solution is not to eliminate, but to mitigate. And the best way to do that is to learn about the history of anti-Semitism, and above all, communicate with people of the Jewish faith. By becoming active in this learning process, one can reflect on their perception of the Jewish community and identify any anti-Semitic tropes that are used in cognition and in speech. In doing that, this prevents us from falling into the rabbit hole of anti-Jewish belief systems that could lead to prejudice, discrimination, and fatal violence to those associated with Judaism. Before I conclude this episode, I want to thank everyone who has supported me in 2022. Your kindness and loyalty to this podcast brings me so much joy, so I wish every listener a happy and prosperous new year and so much more. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, click on that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. By doing so, you help expose this podcast to people who might be interested in conspiracy theories or in politics. You can follow me on Facebook and on Instagram at The Social Chemist. If possible, share this podcast with your friends to have some interesting discussions about today's episode. You can also find all the references on the show notes below. So with that being said, Happy New Year's, take care, and question everything with logic.